Hey everybody, welcome to the Calhoun Ward Living Histories Podcast. I am your host, John Phillips, a member of the Calhoun Ward. Let's dive in and learn more about our ward members. Hi, I'm David Draper. I was born in Marincy, Arizona in 1969. Marincy is a, a small town in, in southeastern Arizona. It's a mining town. And uh, my, my parents were Robert Draper and Anita Draper. Uh, I was the oldest of, of two boys in that family. The town itself was located in, in the desert foothills, um, kind of verging on the mountains in Arizona that rise up to Muggy and Rim there. And in, in those desert foothills, there's a large copper deposit and it had been mined since the 1800s. Um, at, at the time, the, the, the town itself, um, and the town still is, is a company town. Every, every house in the town was owned by the, by the company. And there was no independent police force. I remember as a kid, um, when we were walking around, uh, either, you know, to the town site from the neighborhood or, um, maybe even from school, we'd sometimes see the guards and say, Hey, there's the guards driving around. That was the local police force owned by the company. So a little bit, maybe unusual compared to people's normal, um, upbringing, but seemed perfectly normal to us at the time. Um, at the time uh, that I was born, uh, the, the, mine, the mining town there was going through some really tough times, um, primarily driven by the fact that um, several of the young men there had, had enlisted to the Vietnam War. Um, and um, out of nine of those young men that had enlisted, they all enlisted on the 4th of July. Um, Six of those were, were, were killed in combat. Um, and shortly after that, I think there was even a story in Time Magazine about the high mortality rate in the town. So the town had, had, was going through some tough times. And um, my, my dad had, had married my mother in 1968, um, after, shortly after being divorced from his first wife. Um, and their oldest son had been one of those that had been enlisted and the first one had been killed. Um, so that was kind of the environment that I was, I was born into. Um, extremely patriotic place though. And some of my first memories were, you know, certainly of seeing, seeing flags or 4th of July celebrations with large amounts of fireworks. And, um, just kind of a cool place to grow up. Um, hills covered with basically with mesquite and prickly pear and creosote bushes is what it was. Pretty, pretty scenic as a matter of fact. Um, and always dominated by the giant smokestacks and the, the smelter up the hill. Um, smokestacks which were which were later demolished as they as the mine itself moved uh, the, the smelting operations to Mexico and started doing a lot more uh, solvent extraction um, of the of the copper ores so that was those are some of my earliest childhood memories growing up I had I had one brother um, in our household um, and 
an older sister and, and two older brothers that weren't part of the household that lived down in, in Phoenix, Arizona with their mother. Um, so it was four of us in the house. Uh, the first house we lived in was in a place called East Plant Site. Um, I guess it was the Eastern Plant Site uh, that they built these neighborhoods on. But um, they were small little houses, probably, I don't know, 500 to 800 square foot houses, these little tiny houses. And, and later on, actually, when I had an opportunity to work in the town um, over the summer as a student, uh, I was part of a crew called the surface crew that the mine had. And we would go all over the mine site, but we also went into the town site. And I remember seeing in one of these neighborhoods, some of the pads that these houses had been built on and they were tiny and just unbelievably small. And, um, and so that was one of these houses was the first house that we lived on, lived in. And then, um, the, the town at the time, um, was not, when I was born was not integrated at all. Uh, and, and the mine, the mining company was integrating, uh, some of the neighborhoods and they built a new neighborhood that was integrated. So my family and I moved, moved onto a street, um, down in one of these new neighborhoods when I was about about five years old, four or five years old, we moved. And um, so we moved down into, into this neighborhood that was off of the hill. East Plant site had been on a hill uh, where we had been able to see all of the surrounding countryside. This was down in, down in, a, in, a, in kind of a valley or a canyon that had been filled with fill from the mining operation and then they built houses on top of it. So we were, we were down in what was called the hole and down in the hole, it was all integrated neighborhoods. And, and, um, we had, uh, you know, we had, we had just a mix of families down in there. I remember me and me and a buddy, Daniel, uh, were just having a goofing off, having a good time crossing over this bridge that was, it was about a story up but we decided that we were gonna cross on the outside of the bridge. It was a pedestrian bridge, so we crossed on the outside of the bridge. And I remember him, his dad catching us and told us he, told, telling us he was gonna whip our butts if he ever caught, caught us doing that again. And it would have been a bad fall if we had fallen, we probably would have died um, down under these rocks in the wash below. But um, that was, that was, those, were, those were fun times in that neighborhood. And then a few years later, uh, my dad purchased a couple of acres out uh, away from the town um, in a place called York Valley. And, and that's where I spent the rest of my childhood growing up through high school was in York Valley. And then outside of Marincy, no longer in the Marincy school system, going to school um, in a place called Duncan, Arizona. Marincy had been, had not had much of an LDS presence, uh, but Duncan, Arizona was pretty strongly LDS community. So there's lots of Mormon kids, uh, there that I grew up with going to school. Um, and all in all, it's a great place to, great place to grow up. Um, one of the, one of the memories from my childhood that was kind of remarkable was, um, there was a, there was a large strike around the mines there. And it was really, I think the last kind of real power play in the country. Um, with regards to a head-to-head -head confrontation between the unions and the and um, sort of a big corporation, um, and so this was 19, 
82-83 time frame, there was a strike. <clears throat> strike went on for years, but the big fiery part of it was, was in that 1982-1983 time frame. Um, and my dad, who at the time was a salaried employee, had to go into work, um, and he just hated it. There, there was a there was a point at which um, at which the gates of the mining operation were breached by the strikers and 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 the people that were in the mine had to stay in the mine. They were they were blockaded in there, and it was it was a pretty bad scene. Um, but he would talk about how he had, you know, he would he would be going into work and and uh, people would be throwing rocks at his truck and stuff. And um, I, I know that some of the people throwing those rocks were were some of the kids that the older brother that had been killed in the war. Um, they were some of his friends. And and so it was really a situation where the community was torn apart. At school, we didn't talk about the strike. Or if you did talk about the strike, you were very careful about how you talked about the strike, um, even in junior high school. So that was that was something that that also was kind of going on in the community when I was growing up that really made an impression on me. I, I remember there was a town Clifton, Arizona that was in that was in the the river uh, valley below the mining operation, which was up on a hill. And this uh, this town at one point it got it got really violent. There were the the um, the union had blockaded both ends of the town with with tires and and um, every I don't think there was a single pane of non-smashed glass in that town um, after after that happened. That was and that was something else. So things got so bad that the government the governor called out the national guard, shut down the mine for ten days, um, and um, yeah, so quite some history there. Uh, yeah, it was definitely something else. And I, I would definitely say um, has made me really just throughout my life kind of very skeptical about the motives of pretty much, you know, be it the government or a large company or a large union. Um, I, don't, I don't think the reputations of any of them fared very well in that situation. But I, I saw how the lives of the individual people were damaged by all those actions taken, which frankly makes me pretty skeptical um, when it comes to things like politics and and um, how people take sides on issues. Oftentimes, just you know, just it, oftentimes just inflamed by people whipping up passions more than more than. Um, you know, more than anything else. So later on, actually ended up at BYU um, and had a couple, actually had a couple of encounters in college with people that it, that it had themselves been impacted by the strike. Um, one was at BYU. And this particular case was, I, I was a statistics major. I was in graduate school there. The administrative assistant, um, was married to a man who I met at a, at a statistics conference um, that we went down to in Salt Lake. And uh, I said, well, you know, what do you do? He said, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm a statistician. Oh, really? I didn't, didn't know that. That's great. Um, and 
He said, where are you from? And I said, Marincy, Arizona. And he kind of laughed and he said, I spent a couple of weeks in the hospital down there in Marincy, Arizona. I've been shot. And I was like, what? He said, yeah, it was during the strike. They kept it really quiet at the time, but I was a narcotics agent for the state of Arizona. And um, yeah, I was, I was shot during that, that strike. And so really kind of had been surprised to hear that. Another one was interesting was there was a, a doctor who uh, had worked for the company um, in, in the hospital there in the local hospital and had refused to stop seeing patients. Um, and it caused, there, there were, anyway, there was pretty high passions around this one. Now looking back at it, I can definitely see like, why wouldn't a doctor continue to see patients? But, but he'd been ordered by the company to stop seeing any patients that weren't employed by the company. So he set up a little office there and, um, and I ended up with, uh, with his wife in a graduate class, um, small graduate class, there were only six or seven of us in this class at the University of Arizona, but she ended up being a classmate of mine. And it was really interesting to kind of meet her and get to know her in the, in the context of that classroom experience. But um, so even sort of later in life, you know, as I got older, not really later in life, but as I got older, as an adult, meeting people that had been impacted by that. So anyway, um, yeah, some interesting history with the town there. But as far as everything else goes, all the normal stuff, um, you know, Boy Scouts and going to church as a kid and going on campouts on the weekends um, and everything um, was all, you know, for the most part, just an ordinary LDS kid growing up. Earliest memories, uh, one of those was going to see my my grandfather and my grandmother um, over in Pima, Arizona, which is in the Gila River Valley. Uh, it was about 45 minutes from, 45 minutes an hour drive uh, from where I grew up as a kid. Um, and uh, these were folks that had, had, you know, been born in the 1890s and um, had seen a lot of history themselves, but I just remember the great experiences of going to see my my great grandmother and great grandfather over there, uh, Clyde and Celia McBride, um, and getting to know my cousins and everything growing up. Another uh, great memory was going to Alpine, Arizona, um, and there were two ways to get there. One was the Coronado Trail, and uh, that was a guaranteed somebody was going to puke, car sick road and um i remember one time we went we had a scout trip um with uh with one of one of my scout masters great great guy brooke melton and we went up there um camped out in the aspens it rained all night and um coming home yep that's what happened somebody got sick I remember I, I had the front seat because my mother had told, I was 11 years old, my mother had, well, I was, actually I just turned 12. My mother had told the scoutmaster that I was, you know, I was going to get car sick. I needed to be in the front seat. And, and his nephew, who was, who was a 10 or 11 year old kid, he, he just, it was terrible. So I ended up in the back seat where he'd been sick 
and he got the front seat, and I got I got to ride the rest of the way down the mountain, down that windy road, um, in his spot, smelling Doritos all the way down the hill, and then um, and the other. The other memory that kind of goes along with that is a little bit further up the mountain in Alpine, Arizona. My, my grandfather, when he had retired, he and my grandmother had purchased a house in Alpine, Arizona. And it was just beautiful, up in the pine trees, 8,500 feet about. And we would go up there and spend Christmases every year. And if we were lucky, it was a white Christmas, um, which it oftentimes was. Uh, but you would, you would, it had a log cabin exterior of this house. And you'd walk in and there was grandma and, you know, she was all hugs and warm kisses, inviting us into the house. They had a fire burning always. And um, oftentimes my grandfather would be out there chopping wood outside. It was just the perfect Christmas scene every year um, and some of my best memories. I was a band kid. I played the trumpet. Um, and so I enjoyed doing band. I was into science and science fiction and fantasy uh, series and all that stuff. And so in a small rural high school, like the one I was in, I didn't really fit in very well um, from that perspective. Uh, um, I was one of a small group, group of nerds there, and we were actually picked on pretty heavily. But... Um, Still, it was enjoyable. Uh, my friends and I participated in FBLA, Future Business Leaders of America, that club, and FFA was another big one that we participated, Future Farmers of America. Um, you know, my family were miners, they weren't farmers, but there were a lot of farmers around. But there was a place for us uh, in, F in FBLA. It was fun doing the accounting and bookkeeping competitions, and I won a few trophies doing that. and. It was enjoyable also, excuse me, doing the FFA competitions, going to, you know, University of Arizona and, and doing those competitions, um, which we did less well at. The competition actually was a lot stiffer in FFA than it was FBLA, believe it or not, um, when it came to the more business-like competitions. Um, but we we participated in the in the ag econ uh, competitions and and my friends and I and <clears throat> did okay. We didn't do super well, but we did okay in those. Um, probably if the high school had had the right, yeah, but it was small high school, but if we'd had the right curriculum, we could have, could have probably done better than we did. But it was still, they still had an awesome ag shop. Um, you know, we learned how to weld. I think I'm still even a pretty good welder. Even though I haven't welded for 30 years, I'm pretty sure I could probably... I could probably within a day or two get get my welding, you know, maybe kind of like riding a bike. Um, but it was, you know, all <clears throat> standard uh, kind of um, arc welding and and also uh, you know welding and brazing with a torch and and uh, cutting and stuff. So that was that was always fun to go to that class and 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 do those things. Um, some of the funnest times was uh, one of my friends and I were, we were in the talented and gifted um, crew there at the high school. And um, 
they brought us in and asked us, well, what do you want to do? And, uh, you know, they were trying to put together some things with limited resources for, for the, for the quote unquote smart kids. And my friend and I found ourselves in the chemistry lab unsupervised. And there were things in that closet that are probably illegal. It was fun discovering those things and and messing around. I remember one time we we found some potassium that was just being stored in oil there. And, you know, reading about it, like, why is this? What, there's metal in this oil. What's going, in this jar here, what's going on? And, uh, oh, look, it's flammable if it's exposed to water. Hmm. Well, of course, the first thing we did was we went and exposed some of it to water. Um, Just a small chunk. We were always cautious, even though we were reckless. Uh, so we never burned anything down, but it was, it was always fun sort of discovering those things and, and, um, and the intent wasn't for us to be unsupervised in that closet. We were supposed to be inventorying things, but man, we found a lot of things as we were inventorying that closet. Um, so those are some memories as well. And then, um, just you know, going to the tri-state dances as we were growing up uh, was a lot of fun. Um, I, I had a friend, Ron Derrick, that we would go, he and I would go down to these tri-state dances that were held, I think, weekly during the summer. Um, so we would drive down every Friday night and, and um, trade off driving, uh, you know, about an hour drive down to Safford Thatcher to go to these dances. That was a lot of fun doing that, and and, um, and then also uh, sort of going on all of the band trips and and those competitions was a lot of fun as well. Yeah, one of the things that I really appreciate um, from growing up is just you know the diligence that my mother and father had, how hardworking my dad was. Um, he he worked. And I, I never really appreciated the time, but I do now. It, back in the '70s, and even in the early '80s, he was he was working a lot of long hours. In the '70s, it was just standard for the for the people that hit, did his job to work a 29 and two shift, which was 29 days on and then two days off, uh, in a rotating uh, every every two weeks. Um, he would change the shift that he was working. He and his crew were working, um, and he, you know, it would be graveyard and PM shift and then um, day shift, and um, that was, I'm sure, very grueling to have to change his sleep schedule like that, and then only having two days off every every 29 days. That's got to be rough, and then um, then during that strike, he was working. It was pretty much. 12-hour days every day because they didn't have the staff at the mine to staff the mine and keep it running. So he and the other salaried people were working a lot longer hours. So I appreciated his example of hard work, um, which, you know, allowed me to go to college and and appreciate the life that I have now today. Then my mother, um, you know, just the early childhood memories, even from my earliest memories, probably wasn't more than two or three years old. Her memories of her reading me stories, um, sometimes from the children's friend before I, you know, went to bed at night. Um, and 
her diligence to make sure that I learned the gospel. My dad was not, he was a member of the church, but he was never, he was never very active when I was growing up. That changed later in his life. But, um, <clears throat> but when I was growing up, he was never very active, but she was extremely diligent about making sure that we went to church every Sunday and that she taught us the gospel and just really appreciate their great example as parents and all they did for me growing up. My missionary service was actually a Canada-Winnipeg mission, which covered um, kind of all of central Canada, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and half of Ontario, and over to Thunder Bay. Uh, there was an area or two that were further east um, that were open or closed, depending on, you know, kind of availability, I think, of missionaries at the time, or maybe strategy, but they were small towns and weren't open all the time. But um, very large mission, very cold mission, a lot of hours tracting out in the snow. Um, and just some great experiences there too. Uh, at, at the first, you know, the first year was very tough, just trying to kind of find my way um, because... It was one of those missions that's really difficult to find people that are interested in the church. Um, but the second year, I'd really figured out how to engage with people and how to um, how to find people that were interested in learning the gospel. Um, and so that was a far more successful, far more enjoyable year. I remember this one experience was Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, tracting and tracting and tracting with Elder Staymeyer, who, who was my senior companion at the time, and we tracked it and tracked it and tracked it like beasts. It was, um, which, which was actually what you called in mission slang, people who tracked it and tracked it and tracked it beasts. And um, we didn't have a lot of success. And I, I, you know, a year later, um, Elder Stamayer was a he was he was um, he was the zone leader for the over the area that I was in, and uh, I decided to try some new finding methods, and. Um, he and I, so he and I, and I had had some successes just going out on the street and talking to people. And, and it, was, it was one of those cold winter days and we just went out to Portage, in, which was a, the main drag in Winnipeg, in downtown. And we just went out there and we walked up and down the street all day long in the, in the snow on the sidewalk, which you know, filled with sand, was about the consistency of beach sand, so you're kind of slogging through that stuff. And um, so there was always, you know, there was always a layer three or four inches, maybe two to four inches deep that you would slog through. It was always cold enough, there was no meltage. It was just, you were mushing through this, through this kind of sandy, crystallized snow when you walked on any sidewalk and just walking up and down and up and down asking people the golden question. And I remember poor Elder Stamire at the end of the day, he was whipped. Um, 
and it was it was that was but that was a great experience and we had lots and lots of follow-ups you know to go to talk to people after that um a lot of times you know those follow-ups didn't work out we'd go by when people said that they would be home they wouldn't be home um the reliance on phones was not nearly what it is now of course and um uh, but you know through those experiences and you know toward the end of my mission we had we had a few converts and and people who really appreciated the opportunity to join the church. Um, so yeah, that was the mission, large mission. I served in um, in northern Saskatchewan, which northern Saskatchewan means that you're maybe 300 miles, maybe 200 miles above the border, um, not like all the way at the north end of the, of the uh, still in the southern end of the province but um, around Saskatoon and um, Moose Jaw on the west side of the mission, a lot of time in Winnipeg in the middle of the mission. Early in my mission, spent some time in Thunder Bay, Ontario. Um, and so, yeah, it was, it was cool. My first year in college, before my mission, I attended Eastern Arizona College in Thatcher, Arizona, uh, which is small, fun, very much a high LDS population, junior college, um, but fun place to go to school that year. After my mission, I, I did another year at Eastern Arizona College, after which I, I went to BYU. Um, at BYU, I, I realized that I'd, my intention had been to major originally, frankly, in English. Um, I wanted to write novels. Um, because I like to read novels. and um, But the things that I like to do, I don't really love writing, actually. It was just more sort of, I guess, a romantic idea. Um, and as I, as I was taking my, as I actually, before I started my business courses at BYU, I was talking to people that were majoring in marketing. So I decided, well, you know, Maybe I'll major in maybe I'll minor in English and major in business so that I can earn a living. And as I was talking to people that majored in business, um, I, I was really realizing that, like, you know, maybe this isn't what I want to do. Uh, maybe I want to go after more of a hard skill set. And um, I'd already had two years of college. The I'd bypassed the chemistry and physics courses. It was kind of too late to go into engineering. And I don't really think engineering would be my thing anyway. Uh, but there was a statistics program at BYU. So I, I enrolled in the statistics program, got my undergraduate degree in statistics, which was really cool. Um, and the cool thing about statistics is uh, that you're working with numbers, which can be fun if you like numbers. But even more fun is the fact that every Every discipline that is applying the scientific method in any way, shape, or form, which means pretty much all of them, uses statistics to confirm whether or not the results that they're finding are real. So all of the coursework had all of these really interesting problems in all these different disciplines, truly multidisciplinary in terms of the kinds of problems that you're confronted with. So it ended up being way more fun as a major than, than you would think 
it wasn't just messing around with numbers. It was, well, you know, here's a business problem here. Or here's, here's a physics problem or here's a chemistry problem or what have you. And working with all those different data sets, super fun. And um, made it, met April, my senior year. Uh, and after marrying her, went to uh, get a degree in quality engineering from the industrial engineering program in, at University of Arizona, but realized that I was just repeating all of the coursework that I'd had in my undergrad degree, which would have made a super easy master's degree for the most part, um, other than a couple of other than a couple of additional sort of classes that I hadn't had. But I was pretty much repeating a lot of the same stuff I'd already taken. And I really wanted to learn more statistics. So I went back to BYU and got my master's degree at BYU. Um, and April's parents kindly let us move in with them and, and, and live with them uh, for about a year and a half while I completed my coursework at BYU. And statistics. That's where my school schooling came in. So uh, my hobbies and interests are um, really, there's a couple of things that I like to do. Uh, you know, of course, we love spending time together as a family. Um, my personal hobbies and interests are, there's three things that I, that I really love doing. Um, one, which I'm trying to build a business around is I love, you know, learning and using all of the statistics and machine learning tools. Love that stuff. Um, and I've become an expert at Bayesian statistics and I'm looking to apply that in the mining industry. Um, but it's as much a hobby and for fun as it is to try to make a living. Uh, but I think it's a field where I can do both. Um, so that's one. Um, two, I, I really enjoy cycling and getting out and just enjoying, you know, the day on a bicycle ride. That's a lot of fun. Um, a, a grueling hill climb followed by an exhilarating descent. There's nothing like it. It's great. And then uh, the third one is recently I've started taking up photography, which is, is a lot of fun as well. Um, for years and years and years and years, I've been taking thousands of cell phone pictures, um, but it's been enjoyable to get some really nice equipment and get out and take pictures. Um, it's something that I'm still you know, very much learning, and I'm sure a lot of, this, a lot of the pictures I take actually aren't very good, but um, it's still fun to take those pictures and then process them afterwards. So those are the three things that I enjoy doing. How did I meet April? Well, I had returned to school uh, for my final, really it was my final semester um, of coursework. And then I was going to have one more sort of final semesters, winter semester at BYU. This was 1995, and uh, then I would have a couple of PE classes that I needed to just finish off over in the spring term. Um, so I'd returned to college and um, met a girl in my ward, this new girl in my ward, uh, Joy Hassan. 
She just moved in. And my roommate Dave and I um, met Joy, and she, you know, she was kind of showing interest, kind of flirting with both of us. But Joy, so Joy invited us over to her house, and, and I, I'd, for dinner, and and, and uh, walked in the door, and and uh, <clears throat> April happened to be at home, and I, I don't remember, but she had a cold. I remember that much. She had a cold, so she was keeping her distance from everybody, and she had a really deep, gravelly-sounding voice at the time, which was kind of funny. Um, but started talking to April, and then after after having dinner with with the family there, as as we were heading home with Joy uh, and my roommate Dave, uh, I asked Joy for April's phone number and called her up and. Um, it was about, let me see, it was, our first date was Valentine's Day, and it was about two weeks later after that that we got engaged. So it wasn't, wasn't a long courtship. Uh, and then we got married in the following June. So that was really fast and surprising. Um, and then, uh, as we were courting, um, the question of kids naturally came up. How many kids do you want to have? And she said, five. So I'm easy. I said, okay. And um, and then that's what we had. So uh, Dave, Dave came along about a year after we were married, uh, David Jr. And he's our oldest. Uh, and then following Dave, we had... Adam and Alice and Mary and Mac, uh, all all five of our kids, um, who are who are great. Uh, a lot of them are kind of mathy artists, so uh, tech, technology artists, um, and so it's been fun to watch them grow and develop their talents. We've never really had a super strong desire to steer them one way or another as far as their interests or careers go. We've let them find what they're good at and what their talents are. And that's where they mostly landed, except for the youngest, Mac. He has no interest in art whatsoever. He wants to be an actuary, which is cool. And, um, <laughs> and so uh, he will pursue that. He's very competitive. Um, and so that's, that's our kids. Um, Dave actually just moved back here after uh, living and working in, in Austin uh, as a partner in a small startup there for about six months. Um, and he had a little bit of a falling out with, it, with his partner. And so he's, he's, uh, he's back here looking for jobs and sharpening up his C++. He was primarily doing a lot of things out there with... Um, with programming, um, programming visualizations using uh, lidar and and uh, you know the iPhones as inputs, and then and then creating visualizations on top of those lidar inputs um, in real time. That was kind of what he was doing there. Um, and uh, Adam, our second son, is uh, down in Florida um, with his wife and son, 
and he's going to school, um, working to become a nurse. And he's, uh, I think he's trying to decide right now whether or not he's going to just do a two-year degree or do a four-year degree. And um, Alice is at BYU. She's engaged and she's going to be married in June uh, to a great young man that she met out there last fall. Uh, she's majoring in, she hopes, um, illustration. She's working now on getting her portfolio together, anticipating that she'll get admitted to the illustration program at BYU, which is very competitive. If she doesn't get in, she'll major in art. But uh, I think she'd, she'd like that illustration program because she wants to be a writer and illustrate her own children's books. And um, Mary, who is an avid sort of 3D visualization artist in, um, you know, computer computer driven stuff, but also makes some actually really cool little sculptures and things that she's been making in, uh, in class. And, and funnily enough, uh, she has, she's part of a student art exhibit over at the Booth Museum right now. And she had, she had a piece there that, that her teacher had chosen to have as part of this play called Shark Rocket. And Shark Rocket, um, got a lot of attention there uh, from from one of the I think one of the one of the employees at the museum who, who purchased who purchased it for a hundred bucks which is kind of cool I think that's you know pretty good um, it's an interesting piece it's funny because it doesn't look like a great work of art but when you look at Shark Rocket, it definitely is an interesting piece of art because it looks like a rocket, but it also looks like a shark. But there's blood and scars on that shark. <laughs> it looks like it's had a rough life. Um, and then and then Mac, of course. And uh, Mac's, Mac is a very good student, very sharp student. Um, and he is in, he's in the magnet program um, at CAS and um, primarily, you know, and he's also in band and he, he, um, he's a percussionist, very talented. Uh, I think anybody that plays against him in um, sort of any fighting games will learn just how quick he can, he can press that tr trigger finger, which is very, very fast. So good skill for any percussions to have. Um, so that's, that's the kids and their interests. So, so the question of testimonies is sort of interesting um, because, you know, there's always this question of when did you get a testimony? Um, and I really can't put my finger on that. Um, and I would say, you know, I was raised by my mother to have a testimony. Um, you know, I was taught the gospel always kind of growing up. Um, and that testimony was sort of passed on to be me by my mother. Now, what does that mean exactly, right? Well, I'd say I've had spiritual witnesses of the truth of the gospel my entire life. Um, so I can't really 
point to a specific one that would say, well, that's the point at which I gained a testimony. Um, I, I think it's always, regardless, you know, and I, I can even point to things even in the last week where I would say, well, yeah, that was, you know, there was definitely the spirit was working there. But, um, but it, it always comes down to um, an exercise of faith, I think. So I think, I think in anything in life, there's always a leap of faith. Um, I remember I had a statistics professor that even made the point that even in any scientific study, before you reach a conclusion, there's some leap of faith that you reach to say, well, that's why a certain thing happened. Um, because you never know for sure. And um, in that gospel doctrine of faith that um, I think, I think is an even more powerful um, principle than knowledge that acting on faith is, is, is a more true principle than, than, than acting because you're sure you know something. Um, you know, we certainly, we certainly see, you know, in the scriptures about having the faith of a mustard seed and, and um, I, I think oftentimes in the church, there's, there's maybe culturally we may have too much of a tendency to, to want to say, well, I got a testimony on this day and therefore I knew the gospel was true. And, and, and ever since then, you know, I've been firm or whatever. That's, that's, how, that's kind of the mythic view of a testimony. And um, I think, you know, if you look at, if you look at in, in the scriptures, um, at, at Laman and Lemuel, you might say, well, they, maybe they got their testimony when the angel appeared to, to them. Um, but but we, we, we see how much you know, good that did. But then Nephi simply just acting on faith when his father said he had this dream and going on his own to ask about it. That's a, that's a true principle. So I don't know if I can point to any specific time when I gained a testimony. Um, and I, I just remember all these times being, being you know, counseled um, growing up, oh, you need to go kneel and pray and get your own testimony. But I never found any success in trying to force those kinds of spiritual experiences. But as I let them have, happen naturally, and as just simply living the gospel in my life, I've just seen things kind of prove out. As I look over my life experiences, what life experience has caused me to trust most in God, I'd have to go back to my mother who who, you know, read to me as a small child, who taught me the gospel. Um, that, that was definitely the life experience that um, had the most impact on me with regard to the gospel um, and gaining a testimony. Um, you know, there's certainly been lots of life experiences since, um, but I've, I've just found that it's in small, simple things that, um, that the Lord makes his hand known um, in my life. And it can be weird little things too. Like as I was on a bicycle ride this week and feeling you know, sort of strongly impressed to call this one individual that I haven't talked to in a few years. Um, and, 
having and then dismissing that, dismissing that this week, and then getting home. And he texted me and said, hey, do you want to get together and ride bikes? This is somebody that lives an hour away. It's, it's inconvenient for him to come over here. Um, but that was it was just kind of funny uh, how that would happen. But I find that my mind can be full of those kinds of things and that oftentimes when I act on them, it seems based on the evidence that comes to light that it must have been more than just mere coincidence. But that's just one example from the last week, but it happens a lot. Um, I think probably happens to, to most of us a lot if we just recognize it. I have to say the, uh, one of the things that I like about the Calhoun Ward is that um, I actually have a lot in common with a lot of the members of the ward. Um, when April and I first moved here, we thought we'd be in the Cartersville Ward because of the geographic proximity. Um, but it turns out that there's, there's a lot of people that are sort of nerdy people or people that like to ride bikes in the ward um, that, you know, that we have a lot in common with. So that's kind of neat. If I could send one message to my posterity 100 years in the future, what I would say is, hello. And with that hello, um, I would say, I'm thinking about you, I care about you, and I wish you the very best. Well, that brings us to a close for this week's podcast. I truly hope you enjoyed the personal history and stories presented today. And most of all, I hope it has brought you closer to another member of our ward.